And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Hi everyone, this is Annie for the third in the Solidarity Breakfast summer season. Thanks for spending some time with me. In today's program, we're going to go through some of the material I collected around the battle for intellectual honesty in our system and how people move for positive change. So first up, we hear from Larissa Payne, who was part of the Occupy movement in Australia, and she was talking at an event called What We Learnt from Occupy. We follow with part of a presentation given by Kavita Kishnan at the recent Eco-Socialism Conference. Kavita is a Kurd, and what is so fascinating to me is what she says about the need to change society from the inside out and the Kurdish experience in doing just that. Amazing stuff. We pull our focus closer to home with a contribution from Jeff Sparrow at a webinar organised against the Menzies Centre proposed to be located in the centre of Melbourne University campus, financed by the far right of the Liberal Party, and follow with a cracking speech given at the rally outside the Vice-Chancellor's mansion by NTU casual network members decrying the shift of funds from the university's core business to ideological pursuits of the opportunistic business lobby that is serving up public universities to corporate interests. Before you get too downhearted, we finish the program with an interesting piece from Professor Hani Han from the John Hopkins University in the US, who is talking about how campaigners build successful campaigns, relying on grassroots studies of recent major wins for the people in the land of rampant individualism. You're listening to Summer Programming on 3CR. You're listening into the third program in the Solidarity Breakfast summer season. To kick off the program, we hear from Larissa Payne for a reflection on the political movement Occupy that established the understanding that approximately 1% of the rich are hogging the resources of the planet and treating the rest of us as surplus to requirement. Occupy was a defining movement leading to the present and it was fascinating to hear more about its history and achievements. I'm not coming obviously from a legal place, I'm coming from an activist place and an organiser and I think knowing that the majority of people on this call are in XR, there's a a lot of things that would be particularly relevant for us to learn, um, mistakes to avoid and, and that sort of thing. So to quote the film Network, the international currency determines the totality of life on this planet There is no democracy. There is only Dow, Union Carbide and Exxon. We no longer live in a world of nations and ideologies. 
The world is a college of corporations inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business. So what do we do? We occupied with permission from and in collaboration with Gadigal people on Gadigal land. And to borrow from Dinos Christianopoulos and the Zapatistas, um, and this is a cat cry that went across Occupy, across the movement, was they tried to bury us, but they didn't know we were seeds. So Occupy did some experimental and instrumental things and missed the mark on others. And because of this, I'd love to think that movements today can avoid our mistakes and embrace what worked. And like any people's movement, Occupy was a product of a broader context that we won't have time to really go at today. But for anyone unfamiliar, we were part of a gorgeous global surge of protests that not only sought to transcend business as usual, but was very deliberately a refusal to recognise the legitimacy of a system that fused finance and government. So 2010, 2011, for anyone that was yet to tap in, it felt like the world was linking arms. Frustrated and broken from the global financial crisis, from Tunisia in the Arab Spring to the Indignados occupying squares in Spain, which was a response to almost 43% youth unemployment and protecting the idea of free space and creative commons on the internet, to the initial Occupy Wall Street protests in Zuccotti Park, which ignited the Occupy movement. Um, and, and like Anthony said, we've had occupation. We had occupations in 151 cities, 82 countries, protesting under different forms of government, which is important to consider. <laughs> The Zuccotti Park protest kicked off on the 17th of September and within four weeks we'd organised Occupy Sydney in Martin Place, slap bang in front of the Reserve Bank. So Sydney was the longest continual occupation of the global movement, lasting for three years under the name Occupy Sydney. We were evicted one week after our first night but returned immediately and there was another eviction attempt in February and in July 2013, which what was left of the occupation anyway, was shut down five times only to pop up again within a few hours. So what united us? Across borders, it was our mutual outrage at the virulent exploitative shitstorm that is unfettered global capitalism. We were protesting social and economic inequality, corporate greed, and the stronghold of corporations over government, namely the banks, some that had been bailed out, like Goldman Sachs, whose former managing director in Australia ended up becoming the Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. We're also protesting a lack of legal consequences of those who orchestrated the global financial crisis, looking in awe at a place like Iceland who actually jailed their bankers. And if you haven't come across that, duck, duck, go it. It'll make you giddy. It's delightful. Um, and, of course, we protested the increasing disparity between the hyper-rich that we deem the 1% and the rest of us, the 99%. So when we spoke about the 1%, we weren't referring to your bourgeois aunt who lives in a suburban mansion, but those elite hoarders and exploiters who today would look like a Jeff Bezos, or Rupert Murdoch or Gina Reinhart. For Extinction Rebels that are here, that big fat 99% and 1% graphic on the inside cover of This Is Not A Drill, that's direct from Occupy. The Bernie Sanders campaign got it from us. The vast decentralised nature of the movement meant that every occupation moulded to the specificities of its own political and cultural context. We simply didn't swallow verbatim what came out of Zuccotti Park. While the middle class in America was being obliterated by predatory lending with mass foreclosure of family homes and the assholes on Wall Street were drinking Dom Perignon in the face of our comrades, literally, Australia was comparatively untouched by the GFC. We were high on temporary extractivist profit, busy she'll be writing in iron ore glory and Labor government delusion. 
So in some ways, Occupy as an idea seemed, on the surface at least, premature for much of Australia, and it wasn't. If anything, it was sounding the alarm of what was to escalate and worsen. So here we are 10 years later being sent down the gangway of climate chaos and ecological collapse by a government captured entirely by fossil fuel corporations. So the blueprint of corporate greed and the stronghold of of corporations over democracy remains. So our occupations were localised, taking what resonated from occupations elsewhere and making them our own. So I can only speak for Sydney, but we became a big, beautiful mutual aid network where anyone who felt like a feed at any time of day could get one. Occupy Sydney developed into the Sydney 24-7 homeless safe space and kitchen, which was the only 24-7 place the food stress could access guaranteed free food in New South Wales. The name was changed from Occupy to get the state off our back and it kind of worked. So, or even though our political purpose remains. So the lesson there is, I think, to be prepared to move and adjust with the political weather. You don't need to be stagnant and locked into certain things. As far as what it looked like, um, a big bloody mess is what it looked like. It was organised chaos, I promise. Um, We organised and functioned laterally, so in conversation circles. There was no hierarchy, although as some of you from XR would understand people stepped into skilled roles or areas of interest that benefited the collective. We listened, learned, shared and discussed not just movement politics and bureaucratic process, but ideas for a better and fairer world. Many people coming across instrumental thinkers for the first time from First Nations sovereign elders to Murray Bookchin. And we functioned autonomously and were rooted in decentralisation, mutualism, working groups, the General Assembly, where we tried to utilise consensus decision-making and defiance. We grew a garden, installed a library, organised job support services, a street wardrobe, laundry services, blanket patrol for rough sleepers, which exist to this day, MVDA street medic and legal training, yoga classes, yarning circles, children's activities, art, music, sport, poetry and ample beautiful trouble. So, you know, I I read in the blurb for this event and have come across similar interpretations from various academics and commentators who went there that we sought to transform the centre of major cities into common spaces. And that's true, but it's only part of the picture. We weren't trying to set up common spaces for the sake of shutting down cities, for example. That was not our goal. We sought to function outside the status quo. So that's outside the existing political order by creating common spaces It wasn't about shutting down but reclaiming public spaces for public purpose. Another defining characteristic and, in my opinion, a success of Occupy was authentic, meaningful solidarity and that was, you know, something that was touched on. We could have done a lot better but it was very much um, a lesson that XR can apply. So the late David Graybar said that, revolutionary constituencies always involve a tacit alliance between the least alienated and the most oppressed. So solidarity was essential to the spread of the movement, which was truly internationalist, because inequality is something that binds all of us at all intersections, albeit to varying degrees, and a direct result of the corporate greed and capitalist system that we were protesting. So this has been misinterpreted by critics as a watering down of our message, but really we were showing that corporate greed smashes all of us. So a couple of examples from Sydney. Um, when I organised our initial march to Martin Place, there was a refugee rally slotted at the same time. I touched base with the organisers. We adjusted our start time to when they finished and we joined their rally and they joined Occupy. 
our march was co-led by the MUA and other unions who were very much a part of Occupy and First Nations activists, some who had been occupying their own land in the form of tent embassies for years. Occupiers organise in solidarity with other occupations. So for the Melbourne people, you might remember when Sarah was stripped naked of her tent, which she was wearing as clothes, Sydney decided to dress in tents um, as an expression, as in literal tents, as an expression of solidarity and even rocked up to the Downing Centre courts in our tents. Needless to say, we were not admitted, but we confused the hell out of the police. Um, And lastly, a couple of examples, we responded to calls for solidarity from occupiers in Greece who were protesting austerity and squatters of empty buildings to draw attention to Sydney's housing affordability crisis. So with all this talk about solidarity, it was as much as a challenge, even a concern, as it was a success, which is a complicated binary, but it's worth exploring. So Occupy attracted everyone, and by everyone I mean those who I've mentioned, to the hacktivists that beautifully disrupted Visa and MasterCard for refusing to process donations to WikiLeaks, to Anonymous with a capital A, which was a collective of hacktivists appearing online in Guy Fawkes masks, which and it was a critical vehicle for the spread of the movement, to varying revolutionary ideologies which sometimes manifested in the stacking of general assemblies, to the 4chan libertarians, many of whom have since become full-fledged Nazis. So for a similar reference today, I guess you could consider QAnon. Now, I'm not going to give them any of my oxygen except as a lesson for movements today, and namely XR. To grow a movement in a truly regenerative way, in a way that welcomes every part of everyone, we can't be open to fascists because that ideology automatically renders us unregenerative and not inclusive. Similarly, if we are solely focused on demanding governments declare a climate emergency within the current and very real political context, we risk inviting a fascist response. So historically, when governments declare states of emergency, they've been known to send in the military, which is always accompanied by repression and violence. How can we avoid this? We send her out there demand for a citizens' assembly and more simply commit to being a fascist-free zone. So the 1% rely on fascist thinking, often replicating it in corporate structures. We don't need it in organising spaces that are fighting for a livable world. And this includes eco-fascists that are worryingly very active within mostly white environmentalist spaces. So I've covered some, but I'll briefly mention a couple of other successes and challenges um, that, like I said, can be defined as both. So one of the things that traditional activists love to focus on and criticise is that the movement had no critical path, no clear theory of change and no demands. Lol. Okay, so... But the, look, the refusal to make demands, to quote Graeber, he said that quite self-consciously a refusal to recognise the legitimacy of the existing political order of which such demands would have to be made, direct action is ultimately the defiant insistence on acting as if one is already free. So while ideologically that ignites my heart, I also see the importance of Frederick Douglass's sentiment when he said that power concedes nothing without a demand. As for Occupy Sydney, though, while we didn't have an explicit demand, we were pressing for banking reform and an inquiry into the banking sector. A few years later, ironically, under the term of government, we got a Royal Commission into the banks. So rather than come up with a vision for a new political order, Occupy's initiators sought to help create a way for everyone to do so. So another thing, we shifted the conversation, the concept of the 99% and the 1%, which is now part of activist and political vernacular. Occupy Sydney specifically birthed 34 different groups still organising today and even XR was co-founded by some of the Occupy London organisers. 
Now, I've just, I need a sense, I feel like I need to repeat this because it's, I think it's such an emphatic part of, of what we need to consider is it was truly internationalist. So something XR should embrace if we're serious about our purpose. As Carl Sagan said, carbon molecules don't have passports. And lastly, something that I learned from Occupy that I believe was a success was how our movement rested on a strategic preference for prefigurative politics. So that's the idea that the organisational form that a movement takes should embody the kind of society that we wish to create. Graeber identified that in one year we managed to identify a core problem of the toxic system and that's the fusion of corporate interests, finance and government. In this country, it's a case of state capture. Occupy's proposed solution was the creation of a genuinely democratic culture. So my fear um, that if movements today aren't centred on this, we will never achieve the systems change necessary for a truly livable and just world. So lastly, never forget, they can't evict or arrest an idea. So keep those conversations happening. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. You're listening into the third program in the Solidarity Breakfast Summer Season we are considering some of the activist movements and ideas that have radicalised and achieved change. I heard an amazing speech by a Kurdish woman, Kavita Kishnan, at the Eco-Socialism Conference that lays out the real, on-the-ground changes that have been put in place in her country, a real attempt to squash the present capitalist mindset, which is often taken for granted as the only possible ideological framework like air we breathe, listen up. I really do believe it's uh, true to say the capitalist system is in a crisis. I will bring you to Middle East and North Africa, uh, how the results are being seen there. Um, well, we, we experienced the crisis of capitalist system in form of wars and dem- demographic changes, exploitation of all the natural resources without any law. The hegemonial power or the global powers are using Turkey uh, mainly to, for destruction um, of any kind of alternative, particularly the alternative which are led by the Kurds. So the war between the Kurds and Turkey is not just a war between Turkey and the Kurds. Uh, since Turkey became member of the NATO, uh, it's a very, become a very important strategic alliance to the Western powers for their policy of divide and rule in the Middle East, because Turkey is the only Muslim state in the NATO. And since the majority of the people of Middle East are Muslims, Turkey is needed for the NATO's uh, strategy to make another, another wave of changes in Middle East. Uh, the first changes happened uh, by the European capitalism after the First World War, where then afterwards four nation states and uh, nearly 22 nation states has been built for the Arabs and then four nation states um, founded on the land of the of the Kurds, Turkey, Iran, Iraq and Syria. So that's why we see uh, the Kurdish problem, not just the problem between Kurds, uh, Turks, Kurds, Arabs and Kurds and Persians. We do believe it's a result of capitalist strategy towards Middle East. So the Kurdish question is a result of the capitalist strategy of expans- expansionism. Uh, but I will go, I mean, uh, I can talk a lot about the results which we are facing. So what Turkey is doing, uh, giving some examples. So 
uh, you would ask why, for example, uh, the Kurdish people did Abdullah Öcalan is, uh, was abducted 20, 22 years ago and why he is still in solitary, solitary confinement in the last 22 years, uh, arrested under regime of arbitrary, or why Turkey is allowed to arrest thousands uh, of Kurdish politicians, MPs, mayors, uh, co-mayors uh, in Turkey, or why Turkey is allowed to use chemical weapons in the last six months against the Kurdish freedom fighters in northern part of Iraq. So all this has something to do that Turkey is needed today to destroy, uh, prevent, expand, uh, prevent uh, improvement of a new alternative model to the crisis of uh, the capitalism in Kurdistan particularly. Uh, right at the beginning in the 90s when after the fall of the um, real socialism, the Kurdish movement led by PKK and its founding uh, founders Abdullah Öcalan, there was re-questioning the, re the reasons of the collapse of uh, uh, alternative, so uh, alternative strategy, which was at that time the socialist um, bloc. And uh, he came down back and said, well, uh, it's, it, there's, 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 it's, it wouldn't be enough just to be anti-capitalist. So the, the Soviet Union was clearly anti-capitalist, but it doesn't mean that they were, have been against capitalist modernity. So this is the key point of the changes uh, for 30 years started in the Kurdish movement saying, we won't keep us busy with the, uh, with the results of capitalist capitalism. As, we, as I've explained how it is working in, in Kurdistan uh, and Kavita in India, it is more important to fight uh, the thoughts and the mentality of capitalist modernity, which is based on paradigm of power, accumulation, monopolization of power, which is controlled by the nation states. Uh, and uh, this nation state uh, is the most dangerous instrument to societies which bring them under the control of the ideas and thoughts of capitalist modernity. So Ojalan said, well, if we want freedom, it means we have to start by our own. Looking in the social structures where accumulation and monopolization of power is hidden, who created the hierarchical structures in the societies? Uh, so in, in the end, the societies have been uh, constructed according to the benefits of the nation states, as we have seen, for example, in the last 90 years in Turkey, when the Turkish nation state was built for the European capitalist interest. So uh, through nationalism, through religiousness, through sexism, uh, society was opposed to act uh, according to the benefits of a society, a, a state. Uh, the Kurds were the one uh, next to the Armenians and the others who uh, fought always against these uh, opposing uh, structures. And then Ojalan said, we start to change ourselves, our mentality in our society, where we are looking for liberties, for democracy, for equality. So then we look, we, we should take the mirror and uh, look, uh, look in our own society, how much we are affected by capitalist modernity. And the result was, well, we are a male-dominated society, which is actually based on the paradigm of patriarchy, which is the father of capitalism. So he said there's a need we should go more deeper in the problem. And in this, he was discovering the freedom of women, the, freedom, uh, the struggle uh, for freedom of women as the main dynamic of overcoming the hidden form of patriarchy in each field of life, whether in politics, in arts, in culture, in music, in literature, wherever you look, or even uh, how historical books are written 
even how histories, histories has been understand or how we are teached in history in the schools. In all this uh, kind of, in this old field of life, uh, he said we, there's need to look, uh, to go further and look uh, where, uh, how we are affected by this paradigm, uh, which make uh, one the first class or the second class bringing hierarchies in the societies. And uh, so in this, he said, the one who have been excluded from capitalist modernity, which means the, the thought of or mentality of uh, uh, hegemonial, uh, hierarchical power-based uh, ideology. So he said women have been excluded since 5,000 years from the system in our area, Middle East and Kurdistan particularly. So that's why the alternative has, is somewhere hidden in the women, in the women, in the women's traditions, cultures, thoughts, mentalities, emotions. Wherever you look, women are different in our society, uh, less aggressive, less those who are ruling. So they have been excluded from ruling. And uh, also historically, patriarchy starts with male domination over the motherly society in the Kurdish history. So that's why we say uh, there are a lot of uh, hidden elements in, in the names of the Kurdish women, in the clothes, wherever you look, you will find uh, signals or some symbols of uh, really ancient uh, traditions in the Kurdish uh, women, particularly those who are living in the mountainous areas. And there, there, he said, there's already a ground for us to implement, uh, pr practice new um, alternative model to patriarchy. So the, the, this, the struggle against capitalism, which is the Kurdish cause, started in Kurdistan with women's liberation in the 90s already. So when the Soviet Union was collapsing, we're questioning the reasons. The, one of the reasons is, of course, not giving up or being affected by capitalist modernity, let's say, uh, further after Marx, most of the leftists were thinking nation state is needed. And also as a, as a, as a, as a European form of nation state then this uh, step of industrialization, which was very, very important to the Soviet uh, areas, uh, industrialization uh, without any uh, um, critical stance to industrialization was, um, was built everywhere, which was destroying the nature and nobody was care taking care of nature uh, during the time of the so-called socialist bloc. Uh, so praising uh, industrialism as a progressive um, progress of humanity. Uh, so all these were uh, the lessons for us to learn from them and so well, uh, this mistake uh, we shouldn't repeat in the Kurdish movement because right at the beginning when the movement was founded, it called itself a socialist movement. And then with 90s, with re-questioning of everything, then the conclusion was, no, we can't repeat the mistakes. We should make it different. And in these, I think uh, the women helped Öcalan to find his direction. In the 90s uh, is already the also the time when in Kurdistan, um, uprising starts, the so-called uh, settledans in the Palestinian uh, history, they're called in the Fadas, in Kurdistan, they're called settledans. And interestingly, most of the settlements have been led by women in the 90s. Afterwards, most of the women uh, took part in the armed struggle in the guerrilla movement uh, in the mountains of Kurdistan. And then uh, the challenge came from the, for the PKK when thousands of women went to the mountains. It was a real challenge. So they didn't know why so many women came and they didn't know how to deal with all these women. 
So it was there. However, since the founding, there have been female members of TPKK. One of them was Sakina Jansen's founding member. She was assassinated in Paris in 2013. But uh, there have been few women uh, already in the, in the 70s, 80s in the PKK, 90s, but through the uprisings, uh, thousands of women went to the mountains and it was a real challenge. So how to deal with this problem? <laughs> so because they have seen the participation of women as a problem. Uh, and then uh, the roles of the society have been repeated in the mountains. So women became the fighters and the men have been the commanders. So, and then in this, in the parallel to this, there were ideological talks and discussions, analysis in the PKK about new form of socialism. And then Ojalan um, says, well, we can't have think, speak about socialism if we don't even have a democracy between the two genders, between men and women. If women are just fighters and men are the commanders, that can't, can't be a character of revolution, revolutionary movement. What was happened was then dividing the army, uh, so and creating free space for women uh, by the founding of the women's army in 1993. So this is a key point in the history of the Kurdish movement. When we talk today about democratic confederalism or genealogy as a science of women, or the brave women who fought IIS Islamic State in North and East Syria, these all are results of this long history of the Kurdish women's movement starting in the 90s. So after the army was founded, uh, you mustn't understand the army just as a military organization. No, uh, it was the only place, the mountains have been the only place where men and women in the Kurdish society got the place for, uh, for free education, for self-reflection, because in the cities and uh, uh, villages, it wasn't, it wasn't possible since Kurdistan is a colony under Turkey. So you couldn't move and organize yourself so easily in the cities and in the villages, but it was uh, possible to do this in the mountains where you have, you, where you have been very well protected. So in this uh, army of women, they uh, offered women um, to be teach in the history of women. So they, that's why we, we, we changed the terminology history to her story. So founding uh, our own history, because in the school books, we as women are not mentioned, even in the Holy Quran, we are not mentioned. Whenever we are mentioned, we are the second class, or we are Eve, or we are Maria. We are always the passive element in history. Uh, history. So that's why to make us as active uh, uh, contributor to history, we say her story. It's more important to say her story, because exploitation, slavery starts firstly with women in Middle East, in our region. So that's why uh, uh, we have to go uh, to fight this problem in the sources, uh, going back to the history. So see that we have been existent in history as women, as Kurdish women. And this gave the women a real high level of self-confidence, uh, which then was step by step uh, going to analysis and the move of guerrillas in cities and uh, villages to the society in the 90s. And then the second key point is in 96, where then Öcalan um, together with the women are making public call to all Kurdish men saying, kill the male in yourself. So firstly, uh, the, this, the revolution, social revolution starting with changement of women, women became active members of the society and autonomously organized active members of the society, wherever the women are, they have their autonomous organization and structures. So then these uh, whole experiences went to the uh, civilian areas, which then 
uh, led to participation of women in political parties in Turkish parliament or wherever you go in other parts of Kurdistan is the same. And 96 is the second breaking point is uh, the call, public call for killing the male in yourself. So, uh, and that was, uh, that led to very interesting discussions in the society in Kurdistan, the men who have been shocked, why? Who is the male in myself? So, and it was capitalism, catch the capitalism in yourself was the real meaning. And this discussion have been led by women together with Abdullah Öcalan. Uh, and then uh, later on, after two years, this experience, this talks, how to kill the male. Uh, and then uh, the discussions with the, um, let's say uh, the discussion starts, um, we need the women's ideology. We have an army, we have an umbrella organization, which brings all the society to a member of different diversity, diverse organized women's society or women's nation. And then afterwards we need the ideology and we will um, then find the party. So after all these, uh, we have after 30 years experience in Kurdistan, a very, a very important women's uh, uh, power in the all field in the life, not just um, in self-defense areas, in politics, in foreign affairs, in culture, in art, everywhere. And uh, I would say this is the main character of a um, new experiment in Kurdistan, how to defeat capitalism. And I think this was the right way to experiment because uh, when in 2000, we always, as Kurdish women, we say, the 21st century will be the century of free women. And we see the crisis of capitalism is most affecting us as women, and not just in form of wars, but the form of exploitation. Uh, whatever you see this in different form amongst the farmers and fishers in India, in Kurdistan is happening differently. The abuse, growing uh, rape, uh, state-led police of rape against Kurdish women, arrestments of Kurdish women, there are thousands of Kurdish female co-mayors, mayors, um, and politicians, MPs uh, in Turkey in prison. Uh, and rape became a, a state official policy against Kurdish women who are active in, 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 in amongst the civil uh, society. Uh, I can add many of the examples or what Turkey is doing in the occupied part of uh, Afrin in North and East Syria. So women are sold as slaves to the Arab countries which they, which Islamic State has done in 2014 with the Yazidi Kurdish women. Now Turkey is doing the same in the city of Afrin in North and East Syria, Rojava, selling Kurdish women in this occupied part and forcing them to act according to the rule of Sharia. All these women have experienced freedom in the system of democratic confidentialism which is a democracy without state, which is a democracy which rejects centralization of power and, and the reject uh, accumulation of power. So it's a model of decentralization, model of uh, grassroots democracy in which uh, women, women's freedom is the key point uh, in killing the male as the ground of patriarchy and capitalism.
seem to think a lot about the things that I forgot to do. And all the times I had the chance to. Gambling these days, these days, these days I seem to think about how all the changes came about my way, and I wonder if I'd see another highway. If I seem to be afraid to live the life that I have made in song, it's just that I've been losing so Program in the Solidarity Breakfast Summer Season. Far-right ideological opportunism on the streets is only a mark of the far-right ideological opportunism which was let out of the bag as early as the John Howard era. In fact, the direct attack on our institutions began with who has been appointed to all the most important posts in these frameworks. So decades of rot can be seen on show in the state of our public universities. The announcement that private donors have come up with millions of dollars to build a right-wing think tank called the Menzies Centre right in the middle of Melbourne University was just a fire alarm bell for all of the fires raging in academia under the stewardship of the federal LMP. First we hear from Jeff Sparrow at a webinar called To Fight the Menzies Centre and then we hear from a speaker at the rally outside the Melbourne University Vice-Chancellor's Mansion bought at the cost of $7.1 million, this is before refurbishment, 
while 70% of the staff at the university are vicariously employed. Thanks, Jemima, and thanks all of you for coming to this forum. Um, a few years ago, I wrote a little book called Trigger Warnings. Um, anyway, in the course of researching that book, I be- became aware of um, the culture war outfit, the Menzies Research Centre, the people behind this proposal at the University of Melbourne. In fact, I actually signed up to its newsletter and I still get regular emails uh, from a recent one was entitled Water Cooler 193 Countering Climate Extremism. It begins, Dear Jeff, on good terms, and it goes on to tell me about what's wrong with the emotion-driven response to the release of the sixth panel change assessment report. These messages come to me from Nick Cater, who's the Menzies Research Centre's Executive Director. Okay, who is Nick Cater? Nick Cater is a troll. He's a Milo Yiannopoulos for the Overs crowd, and his whole career consists of trolling precisely the views that Melbourne University says it upholds. So let's look at a few quick examples. A couple of months ago, Vice-Chancellor Maskell warned that academic freedom did not give university staff licence to write or say things was harm to transgender people. That was in the context of a proposed gender affirmation with the entire university. What does that policy say? It says the university recognises, values and celebrates the diversity of its community, including diversity in gender identity expression. It says the university commits to proactively ensuring that transgender and gender diverse members of the university community will not be discriminated against on the basis of their gender identity and gender expression. It says the identities of transgender and gender diverse members of the university community will be affirmed by university employees through the use of pronouns and descriptors as affirmed uh, by that person and resources to assist transgender and gender diverse members to gender will be made available, communicated and supported. Now, where does Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre, stand on such issues? Well, in January this year, he wrote a piece for The Australian entitled Daniel Andrews Courts the Militics of Gender Revolution. It begins, Queer theory from which today's transism derives is an exercise in applied postmodernism that explicitly sets out to change the social order. Transgender activists are not motivated by the plight of those suffering from genders, a clinical diagnosis some of these radicals would like to erase. These are political revolutionaries who use queer as a verb and deliberately mess language to destabilise seemingly fixed-cap male and to problematise the binary thinking they represent. Their actions flow from a worldview obsessed with hierarchies of power and cultural grievances that reduces everything to a zero-sum political struggle. That same month, he wrote a piece for The Spectator on the subject. It reads, It is remarkable how quickly the cause of genderism has moved from being a strange object at the back of the social justice fridge to the hottest of potatoes. He goes on to say, Transgenderism is a reconstituted cause developed in the laboratory by queer and gender theorists designed to satisfy the craving of activists once the dish of marity had been wiped clean. So my question to Duncan Maskell is, how is this going to work? How does the university think that an institution represented by such a person will be compatible with its publicly stated values? And that's a question that goes beyond trans issues. As I'm sure you're aware, the university proclaims its commitment to Indigenous reconciliation. 
The university website reads, at the university, we realize that reconciliation is central to the full realization of our purpose. We are committed to fostering an environment in which the relation between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their fellow Australians is characterized by deep mutual respect, leading to positive change in our nation's culture and capacity. That website lays out protocols for welcome to country, acknowledgement of country, and so on. Okay. Here, Kata, writing for the troll publication, spiked. There is nothing like the world word reconciliation to dampen Australian spirits at a public gathering these days. He used, spare us a sackcloth and ashes. Reconcilia reconciliation, however it is envisaged, will never be achieved by awarding the status of victimhood in perpetuity to those certain set of ancestors while burdening the rest of us with unassailable guilt. An acknowledgement of the Aboriginal people who lived for thousands of years in splendid or not so splendid isolation before the arrival of the Brits is recanted like a secular prayer whenever compassionate people public. And then he concludes... The endless and apparently fruitless task of bringing an excluded people into the circle of inclusion alights from time to time upon a gesture charged with magical qualities that will put the whole thing right. He's talking about acknowledgement of country. Nice. We might continue. The University of Melbourne has a sustainability charter. That charter reads, achieving a sustainable earth requires global actions that are logically sound, socially just and economically viable. As a distinguished research and teaching, the University of Melbourne has a social responsibility to lead and engage in public debate and action. Through knowledge, imagination and action, the university will help sustainable planet and will be an international exemplar of an ecologically sustainable community. Nick Cater, on the other hand, is a notorious promoter of climate scepticism. Here he is a few years back in The Spectator, arguing that far from being settled, the climate change is mired in miscalculations, misinformation and uncertainty. We could go on, but you get the point. So once more, I ask, how does the university think this is going to work? What do you think will happen when trolls hostile to all the views that the University of Melbourne says it upholds become ensconced on the campus? Now, I am, by and large, an enthusiast for free speech and free research. I wrote about Robert Menzies for my PhD. I spent a considerable amount of time trawling through his archives, looking for information about the years he spent as a student at Melbourne University during the First World War, when, incidentally, he spent most of his time encouraging other people to enrol but never enrolled himself. But back when I was working on that, I would have loved there to be a repository of all of Menzies' papers. I am fully in support of the study of Australian history. And I think that um, Menzies needs more study, not precisely to bring out his real history. And a research centre to encourage that would be a good thing. And that's why I am so angry that this project has been given over to the trolls of the Menzies Research Centre. The Menzies Research Centre is a troll outfit. It exists precisely to troll places like the University of Melbourne. So the university has to make a choice. Do its values matter or don't they? All the policies on its websites, are they real commitments or are they just words? I know where most of the students stand on those well, we'll soon out where the administration stands. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM.
One, I am a continuing staff member in the creative writing program, have spent my 20s and 30s teaching sessionally at different universities across Melbourne, two decades of my life. I'm here to express my deepest solidarity on behalf of the continuing staff for the Casuals Network, for this union, for the ongoing fight. We see you. As a continuing staff member, I want you to know that so many of us are not prepared to look away and hide out. We see you. We see what is being done to you. We see the class system the university has been trying to entrench for so long, pitting us against each other. We see the new painful language hiding the same ugly reality underneath it. We see that there is no secure, dignified employment on offer for you anywhere in sight, whatever the apologies. We don't believe in those apologies. My solidarity is filled with rage because wage theft and career theft are at the very heart of this university treatment of you. <laughs> Not unfortunate byproducts, they are at the very centre of policies, procedures, calculations and decisions made, including now in the name of quote-unquote decasualisation, which is the latest ugly, cynical thing of conversion that I want to talk about. Despite the epic victory, victory of the wage theft campaign, and this victory is absolutely epic. Sorry, I'm not pausing when, you know, I'm just going to keep going. I don't, have, I don't have the music of it yet, but just, just shout on top of me. Oh, thank you so much. A little bit of encouragement, yes. The university is using the language of decasualization to continue institutionalizing and invisibilizing theft, wage theft and career theft. The, thanks. <laughs> Sorry, my hands are shaking. Um, the new anti-precarity conversion measures, which are designed to provide quote-unquote stability and quote-unquote certainty to the long-term sessional staff through the conversion, through the creation of teaching periodical positions, is the continuation of wage theft by another name. As you know, only a tiny number of casual academics have been offered these positions, but it's worse than that. Within these positions, the crucial gains achieved by the union on behalf of casuals are being rolled back, are being undone. But it's even worse than that. These positions still research, writing, thinking and connecting time and leave people financially stranded in the non-teaching periods. The stability these positions are supposed to offer is a lie. The certainty is a lie. These positions are worse than dead ends. And yet those who have just completed their first year, and some of them are my close friends, in these two-year roles, I've been told that they are exceptionally lucky, or so blessed, must feel to be so grateful to be the chosen ones. So many others would have given everything to be in your place, they're told. There is a cue. You're meant to feel the breath of the eager others on your neck. I am ashamed that this rhetoric is being used in 2021 at this university. I'm ashamed because every time a casual colleague of mine has spoken out or pushed back on their treatment, they have been treated as ungrateful and ungracious. The toxic paternalism of this, the way casuals are divided into the grateful ones and the ungrateful ones, the compliant overworkers and the shit stirrers is shameful. The deserving and undeserving poor, the good and bad refugees, 
the compliant and angry First Nation academics. There is a history to these kinds of insidious, ugly divisions, and this history is shameful. When my friends in TPA roles and teaching periodical roles have spoken out against the insanity of their workloads, they have been told to work on their time management skills. Learn to do it faster. Learn to manage your time better. It's all part of, you know, getting better at your job. Three hours for one hour lecture preparation. Yes, so what's your problem? Yeah. On what planet can a one hour lecture, in many cases for completely new subjects, be written in three hours? and not be the biggest pile of shit ever. <laughs> How many people who come up with these calculations and these hours have never taught and have no idea what it takes to walk into the classroom and be ready? And those in the upper echelons who once taught, haven't taught in so long they wouldn't know a student if they fell on their head. <laughs> They certainly have no idea what it takes to teach and what it takes to teach in the global pandemic. In the last two years, you, our sessional colleagues, literally held this university together. You held it on your shoulders. We know that. We absolutely know that for a fact. When the university completely fell apart and was on its back like a giant flailing fighting behemoth, <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> hang on, trying to take control of my notes. When this university could only send endless emails feigning frantic activity because they didn't know what the fuck they were doing. When this university disgraced itself again and again in front of our international students, you made this university make sense to our students, local and international. You made this university a place of refuge and community and safety and intellectual engagement and most importantly, dignity. The indignity of asking sessional teachers and teaching periodical, periodicals to choose between letting themselves be exploited or doing a shit job that devalues them as teachers and scholars and devalue students who are being given crap and told it is an exclusive Melbourne Uni lollipop. <laughs> My solidarity is filled with shame for the way in which this university thinks it's okay to, to, tell, to tell people, to tell you a week or so before the start of the semester, whether you have jobs or not in the coming semester, the indignity of that, people with families and responsibilities and financial burdens and professional and creative lives much richer than the professional creative lives of people who make those decisions are supposed to stay suspended, hanging on, waiting to see if the crumbs will fall from the master's table. As a continuing staff member, I'm here to tell you that we will not choose our little bits of security over your secure employment, over justice, over dignity, over the future of this university. You are this university. Without you, this university is a bunch of managers and salespeople who might as well be running a giant car yard. Thank you.
Why, big boss man, why can't you help me when I call? My big boss man, why can't you help me when I call? Well, you ain't so big, you just tall and tall. listening into the third program in the Solidarity Breakfast summer season. To finish off the program today, we are going to hear from Professor Hanny Han from the John Hopkins University in the US, who has written a book called Prisms of the People. It is about the research into how movements are built, movements that can get positive results for populations despite the unequal distribution of wealth and power. Important stuff if you're working for positive change. I sort of have two hats that I wear. So I direct an institute at Johns Hopkins University called the SNF Agora Institute, um, which we have a mission to try to strengthen global democracy and try to think about um, how we harness the resources of the university to try to make an impact on strengthening democracy around the world. And then I also run a research lab called the P3 Lab. And we call it P3 because we're interested in trying to understand how we make the participation of ordinary people possible, probable, and powerful. So people have to want to participate, they have to be able to participate, and then it actually has to matter. And increasingly, it feels like more and more the work that we're doing focuses on that last question of powerful, which is meaning 
Um, how do you make the participation of ordinary people actually matter? Like so often it feels like all over the world, we can see people pour into the streets as we're seeing today in lots of places around the world and government seems not to respond. And so it feels like we're in this moment right now where we have to really understand how we build the kind of vehicles that we need to translate the participation and the engagement of people, of our members and our, our base into the actual kind of political power that we need to make the change that we want. So that's what this book and this project is really about. Um, but before I get into that, just for those of you who I haven't had a chance to get to know yet, just to introduce myself a little bit. Um, I grew up as a daughter of Korean immigrants in Texas. Um, my parents immigrated from Korea. They were originally refugees from North Korea and then moved down to South Korea and then eventually moved to the United States where I was born. Um, and so much of my life growing up was the, was the experience of watching my parents try to figure out what it meant to raise a family in the United States. Um, and so... If you can hopefully see the picture on your screen, like I'm the little girl in the orange sweater. You know, my parents took us to Mount Rushmore, which is a national park in the United States that has the heads of presidents carved into it because it felt like that's what you had to do if you grew up in America. And my parents, when they originally came from Korea, even though they came from well-established families in Korea, they sort of showed up in the United States with the proverbial $100 in their pockets. And so my mom cleaned people's houses, my dad mowed people's lawns, and they tried to just figure out how to make it. And a lot of what I saw was watching them kind of climb that social ladder in a sense. And the reason why I tell that story is because I think it's really relevant to why I do the work that I do, um, because it wasn't until I went to college that I really learned about social movements and organizing. And I think it really spoke to me immediately. And the reason why is because at the heart of what makes organizing or social movements work is this idea of transformation. And that was one of the lessons I think that I learned as a child of immigrants, not because anyone ever said the words to me, but because it was just there in the background of our lives that what we do as humans is try to transform ourselves so that we can transform our families and transform the world around us. And that's what I saw my parents trying to do. And that's what really spoke to me when I first began to learn about what organizing is. And so over the course of my career, a lot of the work that I've been trying to do is trying to understand, you know, how do we pull people off the sidelines of public life and engage them in the work of constructing the kind of world and the community that they want to live in? And I think that, that was probably some of the work that I talked with you all about last time that I was in Australia. Um, but this last book, I think, really came out of the sense that we're in this moment right now where it feels like so many of the systems that we have, especially in the United States, but also in many of the many advanced democracies around the world, the systems themselves seem to be failing. Um, it feels like they are not equipped to be able to address the kind of most pressing challenges that we face as a global community. And so the, this book kind of started with this question of how do we begin to equip people to transform a failing system, right? How do you people learn to act and act with power when the system itself seems like it's falling apart in some ways? And we landed on this analogy of a prism um, if I was there in person, I'd hold up a prism and I'd try to shoot some light through it so you could see it. But, you know, what a prism does is it takes um, white light in and then it transforms that white light into this vector of rainbows, right, that carries as far as the light can see. And I think it felt like that's what those are the kind of movements that we need, right? We need movements that can take people in and tra transform, transform their engagement into a vector of power that carries as far as the light can see. And what's interesting about a prism is that its ability to trans transform white light into rainbows is not a function of how big the prism is, right? It's a function of the design choices that you make at the heart of the prism, right? It's a function of what the kind of structure is of the, of the crystal that you create 
inside the prism itself. And that's what we found really with these movements is that the movements that were the most effective at translating the engagement of their people into the power they want was really a function of the kind of design choices that they made. That essentially, you know, the way in which we construct ourselves determines, or at least it partially determines the extent to which we're able to exercise power in the world. You know, the re resources themselves are not power, right? So, so often when we think about movements that are powerful, people will say like, oh, you should look at X and X movement, they raise this many dollars. Right. Or, oh, you should look at this movement because they got millions of people to sign on to their event or something like that. And we assume that just because a movement is able to garner a lot of resources, whether it be people or money or public opinion or something like that, that, that they're able to translate that into power. And there's so much research shows that we're living in this moment all over the world where the relationship between participation and power is broken. Right. And so we know that we need organizations or movements or vehicles or unions that can translate people's participation to public, into political power, but what kind, right? What are the characteristics of the vehicles that we need to create? And so in this study, a lot of what we did is um, set out to learn from the outliers. Like we wanted to say, okay, we know in general, there's this broken link between participation and power, but what if we were look, to look at the outliers, the places where ordinary people and movements were actually able to translate um, power, participation into power, what do they look like? Are there any commonalities across them? But what we found was that there were a set of commonalities, that it wasn't just a, a bunch of idiosyncratic kind of lucky people that got together, but that the organizations that were most effective at translating power, it's not just that they were really effective at getting people involved, although that, of course, is a challenge for any kind of people-powered organization, but they also were imagining and architecting a different way in which we can understand politics. For example, you know, what we're doing in this table is trying to compare what are the kind of dominant models of collective action that exist both in the academic literature, but also in what we see in the kind of organizations that we build out in the world. And on the right hand side is what is the logic of these prisms that we were observing. And the dominant kind of expectation is that a lot of um, organizations that are trying to build people power sort of have this baseline expectation of responsiveness, right? That if only I can get enough people to pour out into the streets, then political officials will have to listen, right? And in contrast, the organizations that we studied had no expectation of responsiveness from political elites. And instead, they built their entire strategy on this idea that at some point we're gonna get challenged. And those challenges are gonna come from unpredictable places. So, you, so at the, from the very beginning, they're starting from a different starting point, right? And that led to a different kind of strategic logic that we sort of play out um, in the book. So for people that had, for organizations that had this kind of baseline expectation of responsiveness, then there was sort of this idea that if they could accrue enough resources, whether it's money, public opinion, people at a protest event, different kinds of things, that essentially that would get them either media attention or get them the kind of proximity to power, right? It would get them access to the decision makers that they needed. The problem was, was often that they often mistook access to power for power itself or proximity to power to, for power itself. And when they were so focused on maintaining access or proximity to power, what it meant was that they were not as as nimble in negotiating or pushing elite decision makers when they actually needed to. And so the organizations that were acting more like prisms that we study, what they were able to do is they developed an independent source of power that didn't depend on access to elites. So if they got a seat at the decision-making table, they didn't earn that, they didn't earn that seat um, by getting 
um, having to have elite people kind of give them access to it, but instead they earned it because of the quality and the, and the characteristics of the constituency that they were able to build. And so the learning that kind of like key difference between access and power, access to power and power itself kind of led to a whole set of practices that we begin to elucidate where the question essentially is, well, how do you build the kind of constituency that gives gets you the kind of access to power that you need without depending on elite patronage? Another way to kind of think about the logic is that the key thing that these organizations were trying to maximize is instead of maximizing resources, meaning like the kinds of things that they had, instead they were thinking about it more in terms of how do we maximize strategic choice, right? So the idea is, is that if you know that at some point you're gonna face challenge to your power, then the question is how do you respond in that moment that you're challenged? And what these organizations are constantly thinking about is that in that moment when we get challenged, how can we make sure that we have as many tools in our toolbox, as many choices as possible to be able to respond? So that's the first point. The second point is, okay, if you want to have as many choices as possible in that strategic choice set when you get challenged, then the question is, well, what do you need? Well, it turns out what you need is you need resources that have three characteristics. They should be independent, committed, and flexible, right? And so what do we mean by that? Independent means the resources are your, your own to control as opposed to depending on access to someone else. Right. So if I need to raise a million dollars in order to be able to reach and call through my entire base, that's not an independent resource. Right. Because I can't access my base without getting someone to give me a million dollars. Right. Committed is pretty clear. Right. You want people that are committed to sticking with you. And flexible means so often the organizations that we build have commitments to like a narrow policy agenda or a narrow issue agenda, but they don't have the flexibility to stay with a movement over time as that movement is moving through the ups and downs of any political campaign. And so the question is, how do you build a constituency base that is independent, committed, and flexible, right? Those are the kind of goals that you had in whatever resource that you wanted to build. And so then the third kind of thing that we found was that certain kind of organizations were able to build constituencies with those three characteristics if they made a certain set of design choices. The things that we found that were most consistent had to do with the relationship of accountability between leaders and members, the extent to which there was a constantly evolving latticework of relationships that enmeshed people um, in relationship with each other, the extent to which people are engaged in relationships where they're um, bridging across difference, and the extent to which leadership is distributed throughout the organization. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. We're listening to a presentation given by Professor Hanny Han from the John Hopkins University in the US about the findings into successful movements for change, which she outlines in her book called Prisms of the People. The first thing is this idea of like, how do we think about what it means to maximize strategic choice? So this is an example from a campaign that we studied in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is a mid, big Midwest, big medium sized, I don't know, depending on how you think about it medium-sized Midwestern city. Ohio is a battleground state traditionally in the United States. And this is an organization that was trying to fight for universal preschool for the poorest kids in Cincinnati. And um, 
the way race relations in Cincinnati work is basically a black white racial divide. So essentially what they're doing is they're trying to advocate for universal preschool, publicly funded universal preschool for poor black children in Cincinnati. And we did this sort of survey with a lot of the political elites in Cincinnati, where we interviewed like elected officials, philanthropists, business leaders, all sorts of people in the city and said in 2013, when you thought about education issues in your city, who do you think about? Who are you working with, right? Who are the people that you're exchanging information with? Who are the people you're strategizing with? Who are you actually aligning your resources with? And then with whom are you negotiating conflict? And what we found was that the organization that we were studying, they were basically nowhere on the map. Like they were basically on the very edge of the map in 2013, right? No one was really working with them or reaching out to them at all um, in that time. But then between 2013 and 2016, they ran this campaign where they were able to kind of organize in the Black community that was going to be most effective and essentially build a big constituency base around universal preschool so that by 2016, when the issue was actually up for a vote, they were at the very center of all these networks, at the center of the information network, of the strategy network, of the um, resource network. And interestingly, they're also at the center of the conflict network, which meant that they weren't in that network in a way that just gave them access to power, but they were the ones that were holding a lot of tension in the network. They were negotiating a lot of conflict with a lot of the other kind of elite players in Cincinnati. And it was by being able to sort of like move into that power network that they were able to expand the kind of set of strategic choices that they had. And so what does that mean? And so they did that because they had this kind of independent, committed and flexible base. And so this is just an example of a typical campaign timeline that many of you have probably seen where, you know, the campaign starts down here and then over time is trying to build more and more people. But what was really interesting about this organization in Cincinnati and all the organizations that we studied is that at every moment when they're thinking about key campaign events, so these could be um, big rallies, it could be big meetings, it could be protest events, it could be an election, you know, all the different kind of key moments that mark a campaign, they were constantly thinking about how do we build that event in a way that constantly builds our infrastructure within the constituency base, right? And so they're essentially building out this like networked infrastructure. You know, we call it kind of like a lattice work of relationships within the constituency base. And that lattice work is essentially what gave them the independence, commitment, and flexibility that they needed. So that, you know, back when they're in the time between 2013 and 2016, there were certain key moments in the campaign where their power got challenged by, you know, business leaders in Cincinnati, by elected officials, by, you know, various players who were trying to block their agenda. And they were able in that moment to respond with the kind of voice of all these constituencies that they had built because, and that's what enabled them to kind of be at the center of this negotiating conflict. Um, map. And so you have that. And then I, we also have to sort of like one more example here that isn't from Ohio. It's from a campaign in Minnesota, where what you the what we want to show is that, you know, for a lot of these organizations, it's not like building out this infrastructure took a tremendous amount of time. So this is just a graph over three months, where you had one paid staff organizer right there in the middle, the only person on this entire graph who's paid is that one dot in the middle. And she had three or sorry, seven volunteer leaders around her that she organized. And that was her leadership team. And then each of those seven um, volunteer leaders were responsible for over the course of a month, recruiting 10 to 12, what they call democracy builders. 
And each of those democracy builders were volunteers, right? That those leaders worked with to kind of train them on how to be a democracy builder. And then a lot of our elections happened in November over the course of the next month, each of those democracy builders were then reaching, were responsible for reaching out to a whole network of voters in the community. And so what we had was this one staff person who was essentially responsible for 28,000 contacts in her community by building out this kind of infrastructure of leadership that was then able to kind of build the sort of independent, committed, and flexible base that you need at scale. So that's just sort of like one, another example of that. Um, and the last kind of example that I'll meet, uh, I'll sort of highlight is um, this idea, uh, this idea becomes, okay, so let's say, you know, you kind of buy this idea that like movements work in uncertain environments and because they work in uncertain environments, they have to maximize strategic choice. And in order to maximize strategic choice, they have to invest in, in their resources, their people, right, that are independent, committed, and flexible. Then the question is, if I'm a leader right now and I'm trying to think about how can I build up my constituency base to be independent, committed, and flexible, what are the choices that I need to make right now? And the, the kind of, um, you know, point that I want to make is that there are design choices about that heart, the heart of that prison that enable that kind of constituency. So what are a couple examples? So one analogy, and this is one that I think is probably not going to translate well to this um, setting, is um, so the analogy I want to say is like build an aspen tree as opposed to an oak tree. And I think those are very American trees. And so I don't know if it's going to translate well, but here's what I mean. So aspens are skinny little trees, right? They, they're often the analogy that people use in the U.S. is that they're quaking aspens, right? So they kind of like they bend and weave in the wind. And an oak tree is like a giant old oak tree, you know, that tends to have like a really thick base, it's hundreds of years old, it's very sturdy and really stable. And what's really interesting is that one thing that really differentiates aspen trees from oak trees is that aspen trees, what we see above ground is just lots of separate trees. But if you looked beneath the aspen tree, what it turns out is that you can have an entire grow of aspens that shares one root system, right? So it's one set of roots that feeds, you know, 50 aspen trees in a grove or something like that. Whereas an oak tree has one set of roots that feeds one tree, okay? And in movements, what we found is that the kind of design choices, one of the design choices that you wanted essentially was to build a metaphorical aspen as opposed to a metaphorical um, oak, right? And the reason for that is that having a movement that had this kind of um, now I'm like really mixing metaphors, but had like a cellular structure or this kind of, you know, a structure where you had one set of roots, like one core organizational culture, right, that then sprouted lots of different um, groups within it, subgroups within it, right, enabled that movement or that organization to have the kind of flexibility that it needed to sort of bend in moments of conflict instead of breaking, Right. So, so often when movements or organizations or unions or whatever get challenged from the outside, whether it's like a big economic challenge or it could be a political challenge or it could be an internal challenge arising from inside, that organizations often fall apart because they don't have the flexibility to sort of like bend in response to that. And a lot of what we found was that structure, the, the way in which the organization is structured enables people to exercise voice in moments of conflict that gave the movement the kind of flexibility that it needed 
in moments of tension, right? So that would be one example of a design choice. Um, another example is that there is this idea in the management literature that talks about the difference between operational and strategic capabilities. So an operational capability is like a set of capabilities that all organizations need, need in order to operate, right? So everyone needs an HR system. Everyone needs a donor management database. Everyone needs a volunteer management system. Everyone needs some kind of communication system. Those are all operational capabilities. Every organization needs that. But what really differentiates organizations that are tend to be very um, powerful over time from those that don't are the second order capabilities. And the second order capabilities are strategic, right? And so the kind of tagline is, if the first order capability is about doing things right, the second order capability is about doing things right at the right time, right? So it means that the second order capability requires judgment. And um, basically what we find is that, you know, there are three processes that underlie an organization's ability to have the kind of second order capabilities that it needs. And those processes are called sensing, seizing, and transforming. So sensing is basically this idea that the world is changing around me all the time. I have to be able to sense the changes that are coming my way, right? Seizing is the idea that the world is changing around me all the time. How do I know which of the changes I have to be able to act on and which ones I don't? That's seizing, right? So it's essentially it's a question of governance, meaning how do I differentiate the signal from the noise, right? The world is rapidly changing. How do I know when I need to adapt and change in response to it? And how do I know when I can stay the course on my existing strategy? So that's a question of governance and seizing. And the third process is transforming. Once I figured out there's a change out there in the world that I need to change to, that I need to adapt to, is my movement, my union, my organization adaptable enough to be able to transform itself to meet the new moment? And so there are set of capabilities then that underlie an organization's ability to do engage in these processes of sensing, seizing, and transforming. And so those are things like structure, which we talked about, the Aspen versus the Oaks, um, governance, right? How, what are the processes of decision-making and deliberation within the organization? What is the extent to which that is distributed among a set of, um, a set of people versus centralized within central authority? Co-specialization is the idea of what is the extent to which people within the organization work interdependently, right? Because if they work interdependently, they're better able to transform themselves in moments that are needed versus when they don't work interdependently, then when you ask people to transform themselves, all of a sudden they don't have the kind of informal knowledge or the relationships that it takes to remake the way in which they do their work. Um, accountability is, you know, the what is the extent to which leaders are accountable to a base of people and have clear lines of those accountability so that when they're engaging in sensing and seizing, they're actually mechanisms to make sure that they're sensing the changes in their people that they need. And they're able to make decisions about how to act in ways that are responsive to the needs of the members themselves. Um, and then commitment is what is the extent to which you have that kind of commitment throughout the organization to be able to, um, to be able to adapt and, and, and have people with you in um, all of these moments. And so often, you know, we live in a culture right now that's a culture of exit, meaning whenever people don't like what an organization is, tending, is doing, they tend to just leave. And right now, the organizations that we found that were most effective were really good at building not a culture of exit, but a culture of voice, right? Of having people, when people disagree with you, instead of ha having the impulse to leave, the impulse was to try to figure out how can I try to voice my concerns so that I can have my voice heard, right? And that only worked in organizations that actually had mechanisms of voice available to them.
The Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us poster design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. That's it for the third program in Solidarity Breakfast Summer Season. Thanks for tuning in. For the final episode for Solidarity Breakfast Summer Season, tune in next week at the same time. Until then, keep safe. Talk to you soon. Cheers from Annie.
nice to be alive. 